And finally, we return to Doctors Vasirka and Kim and three cases where treatment choices were made that were somewhat controversial. To begin, Dr. Vasirka describes a young woman who presented with widespread disease. The patient is a 53-year-old female that I saw in August of 2008. She has a past medical history of multiple sclerosis and osteopenia, currently works full-time as an office manager in a physician office. Prior to her being evaluated by me, she had been suffering some rather significant back pain, which resulted in her going to see her primary care physician, who ordered both MRIs of her spine as well as her brain. MRI of her spine showed multiple vertebral body lesions. Follow-up bone scan showed multiple lesions that also included her right shoulder, as well as a large focus in her right sacroiliac joint. She was then sent to me for further evaluation. When I saw her, she was actually not in a lot of pain and somewhat comfortable. I sent her for CAT scans of her chest, abdomen, and pelvis with contrast to determine the specific origin of her disease. Her subsequent CAT scans came back, which showed a right lower lobe pleural-based lesion that measured 3 centimeters, was spiculated, as well as a 1 centimeter pulmonary nodule and a solitary lesion noted in the right lobe of her liver. I then sent her for a CT-guided biopsy. CT-guided biopsy yielded a diagnosis of adenocarcinoma, which was TTF1 positive and negative for ERPR-HER2 new. The presumption at this point was she had non-small cell lung cancer metastatic to her liver and her bones that was consistent with an adenocarcinoma. Given her non-smoking history and her relative good health, I started her on Tarceva and Avastin. Unfortunately, I couldn't send the block for further testing as it was an FNA biopsy and they had no further tissue available. When you say further testing, were you thinking about getting an EGFR mutation test? Correct. And is that something you do in your practice? Because it seems like really that test actually isn't even done that much in practice, which kind of surprises me. I'd say it's done pretty spotty. There are research institutions, Neil, that are doing them, and I think that's reasonable to test all people for research purposes. I think there is a growing body of literature out there that suggests in a non-traditional sense in that if you're using an EGFR-TKI out of its usual approved indication, which is second line or beyond, that further evidence, not just the clinical parameters, but something like EGFR mutation could sway you in a direction of using that first line. So, Jeff, what prompted you? I mean, one common option might be to consider erlotinib, but what about the erlotinib and BEV together? What went into your mind in terms of that decision? I had been pretty moved by the data seen with using erlotinib with bevacizumab in metastatic non-small cell lung cancer with the doubling of response rate from a trial out of MD Anderson. And that's what prompted me to put her on both drugs at once. What do you think about that strategy at outside our protocol setting? Well, I'll tell you, before bevacizumab, when we had these EGFR-TKIs before it was Iressa and now Tarceva, and you were evaluating a patient such as what Jeff has presented here, who was a never-smoker, adenocarcinoma, female, you would consider starting someone who had low-bulk disease, low-bulk tumor disease, on an EGFR-TKI because they were in good shape. 
but you knew that you were just doing that in lieu, or at least for now, in place of chemotherapy, doublet chemotherapy. When Dr. Sandler presented his data with Avastin, this criteria for Avastin fit the exact same patient as you would consider for the EGFR-TKI. So to me, that became a harder decision to just give the single-agent drug versus the triplet now, which was chemotherapy and Avastin. I think what Jeff's seen with the phase three data and the phase two data with combinations with Avastin and Tarceva is that there is activity there. Now, other than beta being a very poorly designed study to look for a survival increment of two months, the progression-free survival and the response rate were both better. So I think this is sort of a nice compromise per se to do it. Is it something that you're doing off-label? Yes. But is it something tolerable and maybe could add the effectiveness of Tarceva and Avastin? Well, I think we have several phase three trials that show that there's definite benefit with the combo. So what happened next, Jeff? Well, she started on the combination in a couple weeks after I initially saw her. She did develop a rather significant rash as a consequence of the Tarceva, which required me to actually dose-reduce her to 100 milligrams a day from 150. Her follow-up imaging study, which was approximately two months after initiation of therapy, unfortunately showed progression of disease. At that point, we had a long conversation to really discuss what our next options were. Hair loss is very important for her because she runs a doctor's office and she works full-time. She actually found the Tarceva somewhat debilitating for her in that it was very obvious that she was on treatment for something and that bothered her at work. At that point, we made the decision to change her chemotherapy over to gemcitabine and carboplatin and I left her on the Avastin. So what happened? Well, she received, as of last week, her third cycle. She went for a PET-CT scan approximately four days ago that I went over the results with her today. The PET-CT scan, fortunately, has showed a nice response to the triple therapy. Her lung lesion hasn't changed all that dramatically, except it's less hypermetabolic than it was previously. The pulmonary nodules that she had developed while on the Tarceva and Avastin have decreased significantly, and her bony lesions have also decreased significantly. So, Ed, what was your impression of seeing her today and also looking at her images? You know, she looked very good, and I think one of the central themes that we'll see is, you know, as we're doing a program like this, Neil, and we're seeing patients real time, is that not just someone on paper that you're reading the print on, you're looking at them, you can see what the interactions with the family are, you can see how their daily life is. She's tolerating the therapy very well, she's still working full-time and running a very busy job life, and so it's nice to see that she's tolerating and that the therapy is working, and you know, I think this parallels a little how breast cancer has evolved in that you can find a reason to give someone hormones, and when the hormones don't work, you can rescue them with chemotherapy. And it obviously delays the toxic aspects of it, and that's sort of what's been done here, is that there was a choice based on clinical parameters to start on sort of non-toxic therapy, although she did have some tolerance issues with the Tarceva, and then, as that didn't work, switch over to cytotoxics, which has now clearly helped her. Who came with her today, Jeff, and what's her sort of family constellation? She came to the office today with her husband, who accompanies her on 
virtually every single trip to my office that she has. She has really a wonderful support. She has children that are a little bit older, but they're available for her. He comes with her every single time, and they've been married now for, I think, well over 30 years, and they have an excellent relationship. So you can tell that when they come together to the office that they really rely on each other for stability, and she handles things very well with this great social base that she has. So, Ed, getting back to the medical aspect of this, I think we have to point out that in a couple of respects, the treatment course here has been a little bit unusual. I think, actually, to be honest with you, there are people who might criticize it, starting out with that combination, although, as you say, there's certainly a justification for it. Other people would say, well, why not just use the erlotinib alone to start with? And then continuing the Avastin and adding in the chemo in the face of progression, you could make the argument maybe the reason she's responding now is the chemo and the Avastin just an extra risk and expense. How would you put that in perspective? I think that's absolutely right, Neil. If you go to whatever guideline there is or go to current practice guidelines, the answer would be yes, this is not something we would do. However, I can speak only to my own experience that I do with my patients off study at MD Anderson, is that we know we don't have all the right answers. In fact, if you look at different academic centers across the country, some of them are using markers to determine therapy, some of them are not. And I think when you are trying to study certain aspects of treatment, it's reasonable to do that. In this case, you know, Jeff, obviously, he's very well aware of the data that's out there. And what we're trying to do is personalize or individualize therapy for everybody. And I think what we reflect on in a case like this is that you have to always know what the risks and the benefits are, which have been clearly stated. There's not a standard way to treat everybody, and it has to fit within your lifestyle. It would have been very tragic for this patient had she just gone someplace and someone had given her carbotaxol of Aston because she did not want to experience any hair loss, and that was very important to her. And there are risks doing it in that manner. And you know, as well as anyone, Neil, is you could put a bunch of people in a room and some people wouldn't even give her a Vastin based on the data that's out there. So right. I think there's a lot of pros and cons. But yes, you're right. This is not the standard way. But I always think if someone is knowledgeable on the data, knows the safety and the risks that can occur with different drugs, I think it's very reasonable to try something in patients that fits as long as they understand what the standard is and how they're deviating from it. I'm curious, Jeff, in terms of the fact that she was a non-smoker, you actually made the diagnosis of lung cancer. What kind of reaction did you see in her, and what do you see in other patients who are non-smokers being diagnosed with lung cancer? Mostly it's one of surprise, and they can't believe that this is happening to them. They never smoked. For the most part, non-smokers tend to be healthier people than smokers in you know, most aspects of their life. You hate to make such a broad statement about that, but it tends to be true. Smokers who get in their 50s or 60s typically have more comorbidities than non-smokers. So this is a woman who has lived really a life where she's looked out for herself, she's taken care of herself, she continues to exercise regularly even now while on therapy. She was very surprised and I continue to see that in non-smokers that they just can't believe that this is happening to them. They avoided cigarettes their whole life and why do they have lung cancer? Because it continues to be a disease only associated with tobacco use. So the final thing I want to ask you about, Ed, relevant to this case is a 
study that I find a tremendous amount of interest in and a lot of investigators talking about, which is the IPASS study. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about it and based on that, whether or not you might speculate that in fact this is a patient who maybe doesn't have an EGFR mutation. It's interesting with the IPASS study that it brings up a drug, Iressa or Jafitinib, which has not been in many people's vocabulary in the United States now for a good three to four years when it was restricted access to only those who were beneficial. I will take one plug and say that the interest study, which we reported last year in the Lancet in November, started to turn the inertia around for IRESA. Before, it had really been placed on the sideline. Not many people were that encouraged by it. And when we showed that it had equivalent efficacy to Taxotere, second line, now we could finally say, yes, it is active, and it did have a good median survival, and perhaps there is some way it could come back. That was really a weird kind of sequence of events with Jafitnib suddenly becoming not available because, you know, just when you took a step back, it seemed like it wasn't that much different than Erlotinib. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think if we had the entire body of work with Jafitnib, Iressa, and had it at one table, this drug is clearly a drug that's active and it would be approved. But in the sequence of how the trials were reported, and we actually even joke that if interest had come first and ISIL had come second, this drug would still be out there right now. So you mentioned the IPASS, and IPASS was important more in principle. This was a study that was done just in Asia with predominantly Chinese patients, but again, there were other Asian countries involved. It was for adenocarcinoma only, and people with very limited and remote smoking histories. You can pretty much call them never smokers. And this was a first-line study of IRESA versus carbotaxel. So the primary endpoint in this 1,200-plus patient study was progression-free survival. And actually what you saw was progression-free survival was exactly the same in both. The overall survival, which was a secondary endpoint and has been discussed and shown, was also very similar. What was very interesting is that the pre-planned subgroup analyses looking at mutation-positive patients, and it's important that the Asian population, especially the Chinese population, is a different population than the Western population in that the occurrence of the EGFR mutation can be up to 60% in some groups. And it was very high in this study, and there were 80% females in this study. But it did show in as far as progression-free survival that if you had a mutation, you benefited more from IRESA. However, you still did pretty well with carbotaxel. I think the most important take-home point, and this has all just been presented, it hasn't been published yet, is that if you did not have an EGFR mutation and you received IRESA, you did very poorly. So in actuality, we may actually use EGFR mutation like KRAS mutation in colon, in that you're trying to identify the people who are going to do poorly, but that really, other than that, any treatment works well. Now, why would you choose IRESA over carbotaxel, especially in that patient group? Well, because of side effects and quality of life. So these are all very important things to us. And I think the principle of what was done in IPASS can be translated to the Western population, but the incidence of mutation, as you know, is more like 10 to 15%. What are you thinking, Jeff, in terms of your next step, if you need one, which I guess is pretty likely? Yeah, I discussed that with her today. She's still feeling well. She does have a little bit of fatigue, 
but she's up four o'clock every morning to open her office at six. She has a couple issues with sleeping at night, which we talked about today and we addressed. And I'm hoping that she gets a better night's sleep and gets to bed a little earlier. Her fatigue will alleviate a bit. I talked to her about three more cycles of chemo and then repeating her scan and then giving her a break. At that point, I would leave her on the Avastin with nothing else and just monitor her and re-image her after a few months. What did you think about her CAT scan today, Ed? Yeah, I think there's definitely improvement. And it was a PET scan that showed the decreased metabolic activity. You want to see the results on the scans. But as I tell my patients, and I think what's very important to note, and this is why we are touching on how her lifestyle is, how her interactions are, is that 51% of the assessment should come from seeing the patient, how they're doing. Because if a patient's doing really well and their symptoms are improving and their CAT scan doesn't look so good, well, at least now we have options and the patient can receive those options. If the patient is doing poorly and the CAT scan looks great, are we better off? Any problems with the Bev, Jeff, hypertension or any other issues? No, she hasn't had any issues with hypertension. She has had a couple episodes of epistaxis like we typically see. But other than that, no, she's actually done wonderfully with it. No proteinuria in the least. 